The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, May 4th, the Touchhole Edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate and the dad of Eliza, age six, and Leo, who's almost three. This is Rebecca Lavoie. I am mom to Henry, who's 15 and a half, Teddy, who's 14, and Lily, my stepdaughter, is 16. This is Carvel Wallace. I'm a freelance writer out in Oakland, and I am the dad to Ezra, who is 14, and Georgia, who is 11. If it seems like you only just heard our last episode, that's because you did. This show is now weekly. You will now be able to hear us every week. We are excited about it. We hope you are excited about it, too. This week, we'll be answering more of your questions about parenting. We've got questions about when to go back to work after having a child, about how to get your kids back on track after a vacation, and about what to tell your child when her beloved nanny has quit. Plus, triumphs and fails, recommendations, and on Slate Plus this week, Slate Editor-in-Chief and Culture Gabfest host Julia Turner has a bedtime triumph that she's afraid might be turning into a fail. If you're not a Slate Plus member and you want to hear that segment, you can hear it absolutely free when you download the Slate iOS app. Go to slate.com slash app, download the app from there, sign up for Slate Plus, and you can try it for 90 days free of charge, which on our new weekly schedule means that you will get 12 extended ad-free episodes of Mom and Dad are fighting absolutely free. Plus, um, apparently Slate also makes other podcasts that you might enjoy. Go to slate.com slash app to download that. And if you like our podcast in real life, you should also like our podcast on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting and let us know what you think of the show. Ask us your parenting questions. Help us solve our parenting questions. Or if you have a question that you would like us to tackle on the show, you could also leave it on our voicemail by calling 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-7833. Okay. On with our show, triumphs and, of course, fails. Rebecca, which do you have this week? Um, I was on the fence because I have something that I may bring up in a future episode um, that involves teen drinking, but I'm going to save that one and stick with the positive for now. Um, So that'll just be a little teaser uh, for a future episode. But my triumph is that I just came back from seven days and seven nights away with my husband and all three of our kids. And as you know, we are a blended family. We have taken, this is really our fourth big family trip together in the seven or so years that we've been married, where all five of us are getting on a plane and going somewhere and being there for an extended period of time. And this is the first trip, and I hope the other step parents out there in the audience will understand what I mean when I say this, where we have had zero my kids, your kids issues. Uh, Now, for the two of you who are not part of a blended family, what I'm talking about is those moments where one kid in one of the, you know, two sets of kids is upset or homesick or feels slighted or sensitive about a remark another kid made and you find yourself dividing them up into my kids, your kids, taking them to do separate activities, having a, you know, alone time together, having to have a deep talk, you know, with just your kid uh, and not being able just to sort of sit together and hash things out as a group. And, um, you know, I don't know if it's the age. I don't know if it's just that we are really in a groove right now, but we had seven days, seven nights of almost constant together time, 
with zero my kids, your kids issues. So that was kind of a big deal because I can think of a moment on every single trip we've ever had together where we've had a major (laughs) my kid, your kid issue. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. That does sound good. Uh, Okay. Carvel, triumph or fail? Man, this is a triumph that began as a fail. We had a death in the family. And Rebecca gleefully predicted this weeks ago. And I did not like what she was insinuating on Twitter. But uh, I need to announce with a heavy heart that our beloved hamster Penelope has exited this world and gone into the big wheel in the sky. And... um, (laughs) Unlike Rebecca, who predicted that our dog was going to kill Penelope, which our dog did not kill Penelope, which is amazing to me. Penelope died apparently of natural causes. The story goes that um, sometime two nights ago, uh, Penelope escaped from her, her confines, her environs, and went loose, free and running around the house. We woke up in the morning. My daughter, Georgia, discovered it, wanted to look for Penelope. It was like, we can't leave until we find her. And I was like, I- I'm sorry, but I have meetings. We got to go. So I forced my kids to get in the car. Georgia was very upset about it. I said, we'll find her when we get home. She's gone. Be- she's left. You know, she's gone free range before. It's going to be fine. So we get home that evening. The kid's mom is away in New York. She's been traveling a lot this month, and it's been putting a lot of strain kind of like it's building up issue. And so the kids are starting to get annoyed with me. Uh, and so we got home and Georgia wanted to look for Penelope right away. And I had like four different work things that were all unfolding at the same time. And I was making dinner and I got some bad news in an email about a thing I was supposed to do. And so there was a lot of stress. So my daughter was like, you have to help me find Penelope. And I was like, we, we can't, I, I can't right now. Just let me get dinner started. Let me handle these emails. Then we'll, we'll do it. Meanwhile, my daughter goes, um, do you think it's possible that Penelope's dead? And in a moment that I probably will live to regret, I said, I mean, it's possible. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she completely fell out. So then she ran to her phone. She hopped on and she FaceTimed her mom. And she's like, Mom, do you think Penelope's dead? And of course, her mother said, no, honey, I don't think Penelope's dead. I'm sure she's fine, which was the answer I should have given. But in my stress moment, I did not. Meanwhile, my kids, my my son and my daughter decided to look for Penelope, so they destroyed the entire house. There were mattresses in the hallway. There was like Penelope food was all through the – I mean, it just was a complete mess. I was freaking out. I like I was like, can I talk to your mom for a second? So I hopped on the phone with her mom, and I said, dude, I'm really stressing out. I cannot handle this Penelope thing right now. This thing at work, this thing with dinner, this thing with money, blah, blah, blah. And while I was on the phone with her mom, I heard a blood-curdling scream from upstairs. And I went upstairs, and uh, it turns out that there was Penelope lying under my son's dresser, body stiff. So we think that uh, she was gone for a long time. There was no sign of struggle, no bloodshed, (laughs) no blood splatter. She appears to have gone from natural causes. (laughs) <laughs> and then after, after, and this was all on FaceTime with their mom. So after I said the phrase, no sign of struggle to their mom, she started laughing hysterically. So then she and I had to exit into the bathroom so we could laugh it out. Meanwhile, Georgia is wailing. Ezra doesn't, isn't sure what to do. So Georgia then went downstairs and then Ezra and I had to go and deal with the body. And he was great in it. He, cause I don't like touching dead animals. Cause I have this fear that they're going to come back to life. Cause actually that's <laughs> happened to me. That's a whole another story, but I have picked up dead animals and had them come alive in my hands. And I was traumatized by that. 
so I, I don't know like, that you can just wait, skip wait, wait, over that. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you know what? This is worth the side story. Um, were, were you a cast member of Pet Cemetery at the time? <laughs> no. You, you, I've seen it happen twice. You've magically I mean, reincarnated is, two animals. I have magically I have magically reanimated one bird and then a squirrel died and then came back to life right in front of me, although I didn't touch it. This is a true story. <laughs> both of these things. I was terrified both times. And so now I live in fear that I'm going to touch the animal and then it's going to like burst back to life. So my son was great. He was like, dad, I'll get this. Don't worry. Like you just take care of Georgia. <laughs> so he and I, we, we, we dealt with the body. We, we, we found an appropriate shoebox. He didn't want to give up any of his shoeboxes because he's a collector, but he was like, you know what? I, it's important enough that I'm going to give up this one shoebox, Dad. Oh, you know? nice. So he gave up He gave up his shoebox, which is going to lower the resale value of his shoes. But, you know, in that <laughs> moment, there was a bigger calling. And so uh, so we, you know, we, we gently placed Penelope into the shoebox. And Georgia was downstairs wailing. And uh, we, I took her to, you know, very tastefully took her to a separate room of the house. Then I went downstairs with Georgia and we hugged and... Uh, I told her I was so sorry, and she just I just held her while she cried. She cried for so long, and uh, she was really grieving, you know? And then uh, I said, look, why don't we – Georgia was like, I can't go sleep in that room now. And I was <laughs> like, all right, no, that's a good point. So I was like, let's bring all the mattresses downstairs. We'll sleep in the living room tonight. It's hot anyway, And then, but let's, let's go out for ice cream. So then the three of us went for ice cream, and we had a great time. We came back, and, you know, by the time we got to the evening, everyone, by the time we got to bedtime, everyone was in a good mood and laughing and everything. And so Penelope still is is uh, in repose right now, and tonight <laughs> George is going to make some some gifts for her, and say we're going to say a few words, and we're going to bury her in the backyard, and that's going to be the end of Penelope. So she's like Ava Perone lying in her shoebox? Uh... <laughs> she is. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to do a little yeah, tape I'm outline gonna... around where the body was under the dresser. <laughs> no. But, but we are going to have viewing hours. I'm going to go ahead and put those hours on uh, Twitter so people can come by and pay their last respects to Penelope, who was only with us for a month and a half. But, uh, but we loved her. But in that time, we were, she, she made her way into your hearts. <laughs> yes. Some of your hearts. So, yes. <laughs> there we go. Oh, man. Nice save with the ice cream. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, my triumph is a minor triumph, but it's a follow-up on uh, last week's fail. Um, for those of you who uh, are paying attention, you may remember last week I was going to go on a trip to Canada, and I incident I uh, inadvertently set gift expectations way too high before I left. Mm. Um, what I found was in one of the many wonderful bookstores in Toronto, um, I found a My Little Pony graphic novel, My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, Volume Two by Heather. Newfer and Amy Meberson. Uh, and I brought it back for Eliza and she loves it. She's been obsessed with it ever since I brought it back. She's just old enough where she can read stuff like that by herself now. So she disappears into it for hours. Uh, I read the first chapter with her last night and it's actually pretty good. Uh, and for Leo, uh, I did indeed get him a stuffed moose at the Toronto airport. And, um, he loves the stuffed moose and I love airports because you know there's going to be a stuffed moose right when you need one and like then there it is like a whole rack of stuffed mooses uh, right in front of you. Um, so a uh, minor triumph or at least a, a fail averted. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, let's get to questions from listeners. Our first question is from Aaron. Hi, guys. I love the podcast. Thanks for all of your hard work. I'm calling with a question about returning to work. I have two kids ages three and one, and I'm considering going back to work full time after being a stay at home mom for three years. I worked part-time before my second child was born and don't consider myself a nervous or overly attached parent, but every time I think about putting both of them in preschool and daycare full-time, I feel extremely anxious. I can't parse out whether I'm anxious because it's just a transition or if it's the ever-present mom guilt about trying to do everything and giving everything 100%. I also feel anxious and sad when I think that our only time together would become hectic and stressful mornings, brief evenings, and weekends where you're trying to fit household errands in and it makes me feel like I shouldn't go back to work. I have a master's degree in science, and I'm very type A, and I have a strong need to do something with my career, especially once I go to school full-time, which will be before I know it. I can't just sit at home. Someone once told me you can always work, but your kids will only be little for a brief period of time, which I can understand, but I'm already becoming obsolete since I haven't worked in my field in three years. I can't wait until they are in school full-time. I'm scared to give up time with them, but I'm equally scared of getting caught in a cycle where I end up never having a meaningful career. What should I do? Thanks, guys. Okay. Big question. Um, Who wants to take this one? Carvel, will you take this first? Yeah, I'll take this first. I mean, again, like I, I, my first feeling here is is to like really acknowledge like this is a big question because – there is such incredible pressure on all parents, and it seems to me, from what I've observed, particularly on mothers, to somehow do everything and be responsible for everything and do everything 100%. And there's just no way to do that. There's no way to do everything 100%. And yet, there is a way to do everything well, right? And I think it's possible to work well and also be a good, loving parent to your kids. And, um, what Aaron didn't mention was, so I'm going to have to speculate on is like, what is the situation at home with the, the other parent? Is that parent available? Is that parent supportive? Is that parent working full time, et cetera? Maybe, maybe that was mentioned and I missed it, but that is one of the considerations. But my feeling is that while it's true that your kids are only little for a brief period of time, it's also true that kids do very well, in my experience, in a variety of circumstances, and that you only are a parent of little children for a brief period of time, but you are yourself as a career person for a long time. And if you mortgage the rest of your life for the sake of um, a feeling that you have to be there 100% of the time in the early years, I think that's a decision that you later regret because your kids grow up and they leave and they, they even start leaving it around 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. They start disappearing from your life. And at that point, it really is necessary to have a sense that you have continued what you intended to do. If you have a career that you care about and that you've trained for and that is important to you, which it sounds like this person does, 
I think that it's important not to neglect that career. I think that kids do fine in daycare. I think there's always some anxiety about leaving your kids with someone that you've, you know, in a situation that you feel like they're not ready for. That's part and parcel of it. But I think that anxiety is like the listeners, like the caller suggested, maybe just the normal anxiety of a transition, not necessarily a symbol of anything bigger. So I say if you're driven to go to work and you care about your career and you feel like it's important in your career path that you don't miss out too many more years, I think you sh- my advice would be to begin the process of getting back into work. Um, and these things have a way of working themselves out. It's not easy, but I, it's my experience isn't that it's been damaging to the kids for for the parents to work. I mean, and the other thing is I, I was a stay-at-home dad for seven years. I had my kids are two and a half years apart. I was with them from birth until my uh, daughter, second kid, went to elementary school. And it was not only was it really hard, which I think we all know, it was also mind numbing, which we all know. But in retrospect, now that I'm back working, it really set me very far back in my career. And that made it really difficult going forward. There were it, I just wasn't able to make as much money. Uh, my earning power was limited because I was coming back into a field that I hadn't made any progress in for all these years. And so, uh, you know, if I had it to do over again, I don't know that I would make the same decision. Um, I think I would be less stressed out about being with the kids in general because of seeing how quickly it goes. But I think I also would have focused more in my career and have let and let the kids go a little bit sooner. That's just my experience. I did stay at home for the first few years when my kids were younger and I hung out with other stay at home moms who seemed to really get as much out of it as they would uh, at a really rewarding career. I didn't feel that way. I always had it in the back of my mind that, you know, I that I was missing something. So I really, really relate to what she's talking about here. I'll tell you something um, else that I'll just add to, again, agree with everything Carvel said. It is setting a and this is not a disparagement of people who make the choice to stay home, but this is an upside of people who do decide to go to work, especially women. You are giving your kids a gift by showing them what it looks like to be a person who cares about what they do and who is able to just do the best they can, loving what they do, doing important work, being passionate about their work and, you know, making sure that your own life is the way that you want it to be. And that's the role that that's the the role model that you're being for your kids. You know, I have a full time day job and I have this podcast business at home and it is hard. I don't get to spend as much time with my kids some weeks as I want to, but they're also seeing what it looks like when someone works hard and does well and is happy with the work that they do. And I don't know, to me, that that's a gift that I'm giving them. And that's a gift that you'll be giving your kids too. I just have one small thing to add, stipulating to everything that uh, Carvel and Rebecca have said, um, which is that it sucks that our society doesn't make this easier, that like this is a built-in intrinsically hard problem, and that's partly because childcare is so unaffordable and because it's so hard to take a little bit of time away from a career and then go back to it and because it's so hard to work part-time and take care of your kids part-time. There are all sorts of ways in which things could be set up to make this problem less of a problem, but we don't do that. And so it is a real problem. Um, but yeah, other than that, um, I think you owe it to your kids and to yourself to do something fulfilling rather than put your whole career and life on hold in, in order to do something that doesn't feel like the right thing for you to be doing. 
It's also a shame that other parents don't make it easier, you know, that that people do feel like yeah. like like the need to say things like, you know what, your kids are only little once. You know what? They're still little, even if you're working. Yeah. Like, you're not missing yeah. it. You're not like you're not like leaving the planet, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like I find that the busier I am and the more I have to sort of intentionally spend time with my family, the time with my family is so much better, you know? We have sometimes a really late dinner, but we all sit down together and do it because I do that on purpose, and that time is great. It's sure, would I like twice as much? Yeah, but when you have to think about the time, it's better time very often. So uh, parents should stop being dicks about that. That's totally true. <laughs> yeah, Taking care of really that. little kids is really hard for a full a full day of taking and care boring. of really little kids super hard and boring unless you're a person who is really well suited to that particular job and if you're not then you should find somebody who is really well suited to it and and have them take care of your kids in whatever situation is appropriate and you should do what you do yeah i would say too that in general i feel like as a society we just overestimate the amount of time and perfection that's necessary to make decent kids. <laughs> like the, it seems like there's this limitless, like, well, I need to pay more attention. I need to be more present. I need to spend more time. I need to like, I need to make more toys from scratch. Like there's this sense of always being more and more and more. And my experience has just been, it's just, we overestimate that. Like re, you don't really need that much. Um, I mean, I, I think that there's a, there's a, there's a kind of consistency of love and presence that is helpful and there's a kind of leading a good life and being a good person that helps develop good kids. And I think that, that that's the primary purpose uh, with parenting. And, um, you know, this other trap that like you've got to always 100% be there and never say no and never do anything wrong. I think that's just kind of a ego trap for parents. That's my experience yeah. anyway. And then your kids never learn to tie their own damn shoes and put on their own damn jacket. And that is something <laughs> they will learn in preschool, which is awesome. Yeah, it's true. Nickelodeon's got your preschoolers covered from sunrise to bedtime with four brand new podcasts. Grab their backpack and go on a culinary quest with Dora's Recipe for Adventure. Make game time great time with Let's Guess Who with Josh and Blue. And tuck in for adventure with Nickelodeon's Goodnight Bedtime Stories. Plus, we've got a brand new season of Storytime with Josh and Blue. Search Nickelodeon on your favorite podcast app to listen. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on to our next question. Uh, this question was sent to us by email uh, from Jenny, but we don't have Jenny's voice reading it. So uh, Slate Editor-in-Chief Julia Turner has come in to read this question for us. Julia. My daughter, who is now three, has had the same nanny since she was four months old. She was attached to this nanny who was always engaged, energetic, and dedicated, but also completely disorganized and very reckless. About six months ago, the nanny quit with no notice, and things ended on rather bad terms. She was upset with my reaction to her forgetting to put underwear on my daughter again. Soon after she quit, my daughter started preschool, and we never got another nanny. Since we parted with the nanny on bad terms, we could not have her call or visit, and I did not try to smooth things out since I was not sure about her good intentions anymore. So we told our daughter that the nanny had to go be with her grandma who lives far away, but she loves my daughter and misses her very much. We chose this particular lie because my mother lives abroad and my daughter knows that it is far away. 
It has been six months now, and my daughter still talks about her nanny frequently, what they played, where they went, what toys they bought, etc., etc. Occasionally, she says how she wants to play with her nanny, and I always say, you must really miss her. She misses you, too, but she lives too far away. She can't visit us. I thought that by now she would have forgotten her, but I guess I underestimated my daughter's attachment. All my other friends who parted ways with nannies told me that their kid never or rarely asked about the nanny. So my question is, did we do the right thing? How does one handle this kind of separation when keeping the nanny involved is not a possibility? All right. Um, Rebecca, you want to start on this one? This is a tough one. Uh, made tougher by the your nanny went to a farm upstate to run around with other dogs lie that they uh, <laughs> told the child <laughs> initially. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, obviously there's nothing that poor Jenny can do about this now, but maybe a you know, in the future, if faced with this problem again, the way to handle it would be to be a little more transparent about this was a job for your nanny and sometimes jobs don't work out and she went on to do something else. Kind of the same thing that employers do when someone's had a bad firing and they're not allowed to say what actually happened, like come up with a little NDA speech about the nanny, but but be a little more, you know, closer to the truth. Um, I think that maybe it's time to just kind of go in that direction a little bit. I, I you know, the the deceptive parent in me is like, have her write cards to the nanny that then you can just throw in the trash. <laughs> um, but I, at this point, the child's preschool age, you know, operating in a world where there are also realities and rules and, you know, uh, learning about things like you know, uh, human beings out there in the world who have jobs and so forth. You know, I think maybe it's time to start reframing the nanny from a playmate to somebody who used to work here. Maybe that mm -hmm. might help with the transition. Add some pragmatism to back to the conversation. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't know about that. I think this, like, I think Jenny handled this the right way. I think that was like basically the right thing to say is like your nanny loves you very much, but she had to go away and be with her grandma is fine. Um, and like, yeah, it's unusual and surprising that this kid would still be so attached to the nanny. Um, I, I, we have also parted ways with nannies and some of them on good terms and in some cases not on great terms. And, and the questions have dried up pretty quickly generally. Um, and, and so this is unusual. It's possible. I wonder if like the daughter can see that the mom is anxious. Like if the daughter keeps picking at mm. it because the daughter can tell that there's something that the mom isn't telling her. Um, yeah, probably. On the other hand, that doesn't mean, in my view, that the mom should tell her. I don't know that they're like, I, yes, it's true. A nanny is, is somebody that you hire. A nanny is a person doing a job. But to the kid, a nanny is basically another parent, right? A nanny mm -hmm. is basically like one of the giant suns in their sky. And I, I don't know that you can like for a four-year-old or a five-year-old, I don't know that you can reframe that as like, well, actually it was just a person getting a paycheck and it didn't work out. <laughs> okay, um, now, now, now I feel like a douche because you're making it sound really bad what I just said. That, that, that seems hard <laughs> for the... That's funny. <laughs> that seems hard for the kid, frankly. I think, I think in this case, Jenny has to sort of stay the course and say like, yeah, it's really too bad and then kind of let the kid have the sweet memories of the nanny and and you know we miss her in the same way that like when a beloved grandparent dies it's very hard for the kid and the parent has to say like yep 
you loved them and they loved you and now they're gone and you can't see them and we have to learn to tolerate that. That's one yeah, of the things but, we have but, to but deal you're, with. You're not going to run into the beloved dead grandparent at the grocery store, maybe, <laughs> and you might actually run into this nanny. Right. That's yeah. the worry. The worry is yeah. that like somehow the lie is exposed. I guess if you run into the nanny at the grocery store, you have to say, you're back for a visit from visiting your <laughs> nana, which- Yes. That's where it turns, that's where yeah. it turns into a sitcom. Then, I'm going to play tiebreak here. Yeah. Yeah, I want to play a tiebreak here. I actually, I actually tend to agree with Rebecca that I think lying is. I think it's weird, and I think that there's a weird expectation of nannies that they should be available after they stop working. That that you you're brought into the family as an employee to perform a job, but you're expected to behave as a family member, which essentially means that you're expected to do work, extra work kind of for free because the kids' emotional needs require you to show up again or whatever. And I think I've always thought that was a weird dynamic with nannies. And I think that it's important to be transparent um, about the fact that it's it's an employment situation. That doesn't mean that the kid isn't loved, that the nanny doesn't love the kid. But I think it's important to be transparent about that. And I think what's underneath it is, is What's underneath this is that this parent had a hard time make, being honest about that with themselves and with the kid. And so they've created this lie. However, I don't think that you can now go back and undo the lie. Like, I don't right. think you can say, well, actually, her grandmother didn't die or her grandmother died. And also we fired her. Like, I, I think <laughs> I think I think at this point, you kind of have to stay the course with the lie and hope that and hope that, you know, hope that it, it, it doesn't get exposed. But I think in general, this brings up a thing about the way people deal with nannies, which I always thought was weird, which is that they are they're they're people who are good at the job of being with kids, but they do it as a job. And I think when I think about it from nanny's perspectives, because I have a lot of friends who've done this work, that's one of the things that they find most troubling about families is that there's this sort of, um, you know, kind of emotional expectation that you need to be there for this kid because they love you. You form this attachment. So even though you no longer work for us, you need to come to this birthday party or whatever. And I think that's difficult too. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm splitting the difference here. I think you do have to be honest, but I don't think you can be honest at this point. You just got to cross your fingers and hope it goes away. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Great question. Yeah, and a really, tough one. Really tough question. All right. Our next question comes from Ken. Hi, my name is Ken. I'm a parent to a three-year-old and a six-and-a-half-year-old. We just got back from a great family vacation to Texas and New Mexico. Um, however, the week that followed that vacation was characterized by fighting about bedtime, fighting about waking up, trouble at school, fighting about food, complaining about everything, and generally adverse behavior that took a week to get over. So my question to you is, do you have any parenting tips for how to help your kids adjust to getting back into the routine after a holiday? And for any of you, is it just not worth it to go on vacation because adjusting to real life again is so much trouble. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Rebecca, you're just back from vacation. How are your guys doing? Uh, they are going to bed way too late and um, still in the, you know, kid version of jet lag just from having, you know, free reign and being able to run around on an island and swim all day for seven <laughs> days. So I totally get it. And this, unfortunately is just the price you pay when you go on trips with kids. And especially if you want them to have a good time on the trip, because that is all about breaking routine, right? So, you know, one of the things I did, especially with my younger son, who I think I've talked about on the show before, has ADHD. And when he was a lot younger, 
he'd come back from Christmas break or from, um, you know, a vacation. And just it's basically like everything that they'd been working on at school with him around behavior and work would just completely fall apart. And they were starting from scratch. So I just started communicating that, you know, to the to the school, just saying, uh, setting the expectation. You know, when we get back from breaks, uh, my kid just has a really hard time adjusting back at home, which I know will also interrupt a school routine. Just a heads up if there are any particular issues, please let me know and we'll just try to be consistent. Um, you know, the other thing you can do is on the actual trip, just drop cues a lot of the time that this is a special you know, off label version of your life. It's not the way it normally is. Just say, remember, this is special vacation food. This is special this. This is special that. And then it sort of lives in that special other box and they don't maybe expect it as much when they get home. But it is unfortunately just kind of the the price you pay, I think, when you take kids away somewhere or when they have time off. Totally true. The one other thing that we have done that has had some small success is like if you can come home a little earlier than you have to, like it's worth losing a day of vacation if you don't like get back the night before school starts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because that's the really brutal one. I try to get back from vacation a day early. That Sunday before we go back to school should be at home just because Sundays at home are really important to me in general, not on some like family thing, but just because it's a reset day anyway, Sunday evenings. It's like people are doing laundry. They're getting their clothes together for the week. There's just kind of a mental prep that I find is really important to Sunday evenings. So I try not to schedule stuff where the kids are out on Sunday evening or they're at the mall or whatever. I try to get everyone kind of like in the house and and focused, hunkered down by Sunday at 6 p.m. And so if, I think if you're on a vacation, to me, the whole day of Sunday would be that transition day. That way you don't have to give up the vacation, which I think is crazy. No, you, you've got to take vacations. You've got to break, bust up the routine. That's the whole point, like Rebecca said. But I think having that one-day buffer is probably really helpful to helping people make that transition. And the laundry part, too. That's important. You just you glossed over it. But having all that vacation laundry, like it Mm. sucks to come home on a Monday from work and have there still be open suitcases on the floor. (laughs) And then and and then the kids are still in that mindset of like our house is chaotic. And it it does feel like when you get that laundry done and put away, that life kind of clicks back uh, in order. And, you know, that's true for the kids, too. It sounds like a dumb thing, but it's it's actually an important detail. That is a great point, and and that is a ongoing perennial fail of me personally, and I am going to try to live up to your great advice there. Okay, uh, moving on. Recommendations. Um, I have a recommendation that is uh, couldn't be more obvious, well-known, canonical, Um, but me and Leo have been reading In the Night Kitchen by Maurice Sendak. Uh, it's the slightly less known Sendak after, um, where the wild things are, which everybody knows and was a movie, uh, in the night kitchen is like almost everybody knows it. Uh, and he has just fallen for it lately. And so we've read it like a hundred times in the past few days. It's fantastic. Wow. Um, if you remember, you know, where the wild things are is the one about like the angry boy. It's the one about the boy who is sent to bed without his supper. And he has this fantasy of becoming king of all the wild things. Oh. Um, but in the night kitchen is about like being the baby and swimming in the milk and the sort of overwhelming kind of Mm. infant sexual stuff. And there you see the uh, naked boy and he says, cock-a-doodle-doo, and he slides down the side. It's about that sort of triumphant (laughs) Oedipal three-year-old thing. And, um, 
Well, he, we are really into it, and it seems to really scratch some kind of itch. Uh, and if you haven't visited that one in a while, um, it's pretty powerful. In the Night Kitchen by Maurice Sendak. Carvel, what do you recommend? I am recommending another book that I, I walked into the living room and found my daughter reading of her own accord. I don't know where she acquired it. I guess she ordered it on Amazon, but it's called How to Be a Boss, B-A-W-S-E, by Lily Singh. Lily Singh is um, is a YouTuber who goes by the name Superwoman, who has six million followers, and I just heard of her like three months ago, which is that's what it means to be parents of preteens. Anyway, Lily Singh makes a uh, she's a woman who makes a lot of hilarious YouTube videos about what it's like to deal with life, what it's like to deal with men, what it's like to deal with racism, what it's like to deal with sexism. But she also wrote this book called How to Be a Boss, which is basically a kind of a guide to surviving and conquering life. And it's a little bit on the self help side in terms of like how to like kind of sort of get your way and do what you want. But my daughter was reading excerpts to me and her brother the other night, and I was just really amazed at the stuff that was in there. My daughter's 11. This is obviously not a book for everyone of that age uh, who's younger, of different ages. But I think that, like, for an 11-year-old girl, a 10-year-old girl, a 12-year-old girl who's, like, beginning to face that difficulty of going out into the world and having to figure out how to establish her space and go for what she wants and deal with negative feedback and static, I think getting this example of like a woman saying, here's how I did it. Here's how I go about it. That's written specifically for younger girls is super, super helpful. And uh, it just made me so happy to see her reading it. The book again is called how to be a boss B A W S E by Lily Singh. Great. Rebecca, what do you recommend? I'm going to recommend our family's favorite card game. And if it's a game that you know how to play, uh, you might, for your own family, want to rebrand it. That is the college card game known as Asshole in the common vernacular. Uh, when my kids were younger, we used to call it Touch Hole because um, it's a game that we very often play. That's worse. Yeah, yeah well, that touch is hole is a little hole at the top disturbing. of a cannon. No, that's the hole at the top of a cannon. Come on, it's a real mm, thing. And my kids were into pirates, so they thought it was. I funny. have images now in my head that are not that are not okay, and that's your fault. <laughs> well, oh, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it. Right. You can call it the cabinet. That's another game, a name that we gave it for a while because you have a president and a vice president at the end of each hand. And the reason I love. Uh, this game is because it is a game that, oh gosh, I, my boys, I think they taught it to me. They learned it from some ne'er-do-well. They learned it from their uh, babysitter who was a guy, college-aged guy many years ago. Uh, but it's basically Uno with cards. So it's a kind of a wide range of ages can play because there is a lot of strategy, but it's also the rules are simple. But what's really fun about it is that, you know, the person who wins the hand, the president, if they get to be president three times, gets to add a rule to the game. So if you have a sort of a continuing game going and you just play a few hands a night and then a few hands the next night, it becomes more and more complicated until you either start over or until some newly appointed three times president says, all right, my new rules, we're going back to the original rules. Um, you end up with sort of like a unique game that your family designed that has rules that only your family knows. So, um, you know, we play this game a lot on vacation. So people sort of near us at other tables at restaurants or wherever we are, picnic tables on the beach, watch us play. And 
it looks incredibly complicated because, you know, someone plays a jack and then you have to go in the other direction. Like that's one of the rules or um, but it becomes like your own language that you're only speaking with each other. And it takes a lot of collaborative thinking to remember what the rules are. Um, if there are verbal rules, like every time you do something, you have to say something. Um, I don't know. It's just a really, really great game that I think has been ruined with bad branding. And I uh, would recommend looking up the rules on the web, playing with your family, give it any name you want. If you don't like touch hole, call it something else. But yeah, that's my recommendation is the college card game known as asshole. And you know what? You can also drink when you have the socials, but it could just be, um, you know, water in a glass if you want. Or you can have some other ritual when when you do the socials in the game. So um, that's my recommendation. And I, I'll stand behind it if anybody gives me crap about it. Sounds great. Uh, we will post links to all of these recommendations, including the rules for the popular game touch hole uh, on our episode page. Yes. You see you see how that sounds, Rebecca? Horrible. It sounds I just want Gabe horrible. to say touch hole and make that my ringtone no. for Gabe on my phone. Okay. That's our show. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Benjamin Frisch. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. June Thomas is the managing producer. This podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Carvel, Rebecca, and I will be back in one week's time. We'll see you then. Yeah.